Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with Friday's episode of Scripture Uncovered. And we are going on a sea voyage. Now recall, St. Paul was not a prisoner during his two-year stay at Caesarea. He was a Roman citizen held under protective custody at Herod's palace until his case could be adjudicated. Governor Felix, procurator of Judea from A.D. 52 to 60, ordered that Paul should, and I quote chapter 24, verse 23 of Acts, have some liberty and that the guards should not prevent any of his friends from caring for his needs. Indeed, Governor Felix himself sent for him very often and conversed with him, we read in verse 26. After two years, however, A.D. 58 to 60, Festus, procurator of Judea from A.D. 60 to 62, succeeded Governor Felix. Learning of Paul's case, Festus ordered the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem to Caesarea, where they were to present their case, once again, against Paul. With Felix gone and not wishing to go back to square one, St. Paul exercised his right as a Roman citizen to appeal his case directly to Rome. Festus conferred with his attorneys, and he ordered that Paul be transferred immediately. You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go, he said. So rested and ready to travel, St. Paul board ship at Herod's deep water port, Caesarea Maritima, headed for Rome. We have a wonderful research tool developed by Stanford University called Orbis. It's a geospatial modeling of the Roman Empire in AD 100. And we can map by land or by sea any journeys that we want to map and it will tell us how long the journey would take depending on the direction we go, whether following the coastline or open sea or over roads. It will tell us how long the journey will take, how much it will cost at different times of the year. It's a wonderful research tool, Orbis, O-R-B-I-S. Check it out. But Orbis tells us that the voyage that Paul is about to take from Caesarea Maritima to Rome would normally cover about 1,800 miles and take 24 days. You could get pretty much anywhere within the Roman Empire, even Rome to Caesarea Maritima, from one, the western edge to the eastern edge, in less than a month. Now, Luke's narrative here in Acts fits the classic pattern of other sea voyages. Homer's Odyssey, with Odysseus sailing home from the Trojan War. Virgil's Aeneid, with Aeneas sailing from Troy to found a new home for the survivors of the Trojan War that will become Rome. And Jonah's memorable misadventure on board ship and in the belly of a big fish. All are great stories. And all may be read at a deeper level as allegory, as a pilgrimage of life, Tales fraught with adventure and danger with the hero ultimately arriving triumphantly at his destination. So we turn to Acts chapter 27 at verse 1. Think of Paul on the journey of a hero. When it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they handed Paul and some other prisoners over to a centurion named Julius of the cohort Augusta. 
we went on board a ship from Admiralteum, bound for ports in the province of Asia, and set sail. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. On the following day, we put in at Sidon, in Lebanon of today, where Julius, the centurion, was kind enough to allow Paul to visit his friends and took care of him. From there, we put out to sea and sailed around the sheltered side of Cyprus because of the headwinds and crossing the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. So if we pull up a Google Earth map, we can follow the route very nicely. You can also follow it on Orbis. Now, as we know, the basic structure of a Roman military unit was a legion consisting of 6,000 men, six cohorts, I'm sorry, 10 cohorts consisting of 600 men, and a century, 100 men, six centuries making up a cohort. So legion, 6,000 men, cohort, 600 men, century, 100 men. Julius was a centurion, a century commander of the cohort Augusta. Apparently, he and his men were assigned to transport a group of prisoners to Rome, much as a brig chaser or escort transports prisoners in today's Navy or Marine Corps. And remember, Paul is not one of Julius' prisoners. Paul is a Roman citizen accused by the Jewish leadership and the target of their assassination plot who has appealed his case to Rome. So while in transit, the Roman government has the obligation to protect Paul, as they did during his stay at Caesarea. And Julius has been assigned the job. So, so far, it seems like a rather pleasant voyage. At Sidon, Julius allows Paul to disembark and stay with friends, perhaps accompanied by a bodyguard for his protection, and the ship's captain skillfully sails the ship to the lee of Cyprus because of the headwinds. Now there, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship that was sailing to Italy and put us on board. Notice Luke is with Paul. Us. For many days, we made little headway, arriving at Sindus only with difficulty, because the wind would not permit us to continue our course. We sailed for the sheltered side of Crete off Salomon. We sailed past it with great difficulty and reached a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Much time had now passed, and sailing had become hazardous because the time of the fast had already gone by. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that this voyage will result in severe damage and heavy loss, not only to the cargo and the ship, but also to our lives. The fast, or Yom Kippur, occurs on the 10th day of the 7th month. We read that in Numbers 29, verse 7. Tishri occurs in September, October. In AD 59, Yom Kippur fell on October 5th. Now, St. Paul has spent a lot of time aboard ships during his travels, and he knows about weather conditions at sea 
this time of year. Weather conditions in the Mediterranean as we move into winter are very harsh. The centurion, however, paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Well, of course, the centurion's in charge of transporting prisoners, and he would defer to the ship captain and the ship owner, not to Paul. Since the harbor was unfavorably situated for spending the winter, the majority planned to put out to sea from there in the hope of reaching Phoenix, a port in Crete facing west-northwest, and spend the winter there. A south wind blew gently, and thinking they had attained their objective, they weighed anchor and sailed along close to the coast of Crete. But before long, an offshore wind of hurricane force called a nor'easter struck. Since the ship was caught up in it and could not head into the wind, we gave way and let ourselves be driven. So the wind is coming from the north, a hurricane force wind, pushing the ship south in the Mediterranean toward the Libyan coast. We passed along the sheltered side of an island named Calda and managed only with difficulty to get the dinghy under control. They hoisted it aboard, then used cables to undergirt the ship because of their fear that they would run aground on the shoal of Sirtis. They lowered the drift anchor and were carried along this way. And we were being pounded by the storm so violently that the next day they jettisoned some cargo, and on the third day, with their own hands, they threw even the ship's tackle overboard. Neither the sun nor the stars were visible for many days, and no small storm raged. Finally, all hope of our surviving was taken away. It is a tremendous storm in the Mediterranean. In one of my classes, I had a retired Navy captain who captained aircraft carriers for most of his career in the Mediterranean. And he said to me when I was teaching this very material in class, he said, raised his hand, and he said, I've captained aircraft carriers in the Mediterranean at this very time. And I have sat in the captain's chair and I have seen the deck of the aircraft carrier at 45 degrees to the left and then instantly, whew, 45 degrees to the right. An aircraft carrier the size of a small city. Imagine this ship. The storm is fierce, a nor'easter with hurricane-force winds. A Category 1 hurricane has sustained winds of 75 to 95 miles per hour. Category 5, greater than 155 miles per hour. As Luke said, it was a storm of no small proportion. With hurricane-force winds rotating clockwise, they're afraid the ship will run aground on the Sirtis. The Sirtis. Apollonius of Rhodes in his Argonautica, a third century BC work, describes a ship that was hit by a deadly blast of north wind that seized them in mid-course and carried them toward the Libyan Sea for nine whole nights and as many days until they came far into Sirtis, where there is no getting out again for ships once they're forced to enter that gulf. 
For everywhere are shallows, everywhere thickets of seaweed from the depths, and over them silently washes the foam of the water. Diochrysostom writes that once a ship sails into the Syrtis, egress is impossible, for it consists of shoals, cross currents, and long sandbars extending a great distance. Paul and company are in big trouble. Well, we read in chapter 27, beginning at 21, when many would no longer eat, Paul stood among them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice and not set sail from Crete, and you would have avoided this. I urge you, keep your courage. Not one of you will be lost, only the ship. For last, really? Yes, last night an angel of God the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood by me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You are destined to stand before Caesar. And behold, for your sake, God has granted safety to all who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men. I trust in God that it will turn out as I've been told. We are destined to run aground on some island. Just like Paul. I told you so. <laughs> On the 14th night, as we were still being driven about on the Adriatic Sea, toward midnight, the sailors began to suspect that they were nearing land. It it just smelled different. They took soundings and found 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took soundings, 15 fathoms. Oh, they are coming toward land. It's getting more shallow. But then, fearing that it would run aground on a rocky coast, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight to come. The sailors then tried to abandon ship. They lowered the dinghy to the sea on the pretext of going to lay out anchors from the bow. The Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes of the dinghy and set it adrift. That is truly a disgusting thing for the ship's crew to do, to abandon ship, leave the passengers, and make way to safety. The captain and crew abandoning ship. It happens. Happens on our day. In fact, on April 6th, 2014, Lee Yoon-suk, the cowardly captain of the Korean ferry boat Seawall left 304 passengers to die. He's currently serving 36 years in prison for gross negligence. I remember reading about that in the paper in 2014. And during the early 2000s, about eight years in a row, I led diving expeditions to the Egyptian Red Sea. We chartered a boat for a week We flew into Cairo, stayed overnight, flew down to Hergada, then stayed overnight, made our way down to Marsa Alam, and that's where our our boat would be. We could sleep 18 on board. We owned the boat for a week, so we dove the Egyptian Red Sea. We dove a number of shipwrecks in the Egyptian Red Sea, one of which was the Salem Express. It sank in the Egyptian Red Sea, on December 17, 1991, 470 people died. The captain, 
Hassan Morrow. Order his crew to let down the lifeboats and save yourselves. All these people on board were coming from Saudi Arabia back to Egypt. They had been in Saudi to Mecca for their Hajj. He abandoned them. The ship went onto the, onto the shoals, sank, and 470 people died. We dove that wreck, and there's still a debris field on the bottom of the Red Sea. It's about 115 feet on the bottom. And uh, my dive partner and I were the only two of the divers who were trained as technical divers, and uh, extended depth makes gas and entering enclosed spaces like caves and shipwrecks. The ship had hit a coral reef and opened the bow beneath the waterline. And it was only about two feet wide, or maybe 15 feet long, maybe three feet wide and 15 feet long. So my partner and I put on our tech equipment and we entered the ship. We had our lights on and uh, we went in and we were moving very carefully so as not to silt it up. And we were in the, in the baggage hold, the cargo hold. And it was one of the saddest things I'd ever seen. There were suitcases lying right and left. And I remember seeing between two leather suitcases, a bicycle, a little girl's bicycle that had been painted pink, now rusting in the water. And I looked at that. These were people, Muslims, who, like Jews, if possible, once in your life you go to Jerusalem, Muslims go to Mecca on Hajj. It was a big event. These were poor people from Egypt. And there were the two suitcases with a little pink bicycle between them. And a bumper sticker on one of the suitcases said, Have a lovely holiday. I, I wept. I'm about to weep again as I retell the story. I'll never forget that. Whatever happened to the captain of the Salem Express? He was arrested when they arrived in Egypt in the lifeboats. He was being held for trial. And they said that he had beaten himself to death in his cell. Well, there's some poetic justice. Of course, he didn't do it. It was done for him. Well, until the day began to dawn, Paul kept urging all to take some food. He said, today is the 14th day that you've been waiting and hungry and eating nothing. Two weeks you haven't eaten anything. I urge you, take some food. It'll help you survive. Not a hair of the head of any one of you will be lost. Wish I was on board that ship. I'd have a lot more hair now, I suppose. <laughs> but when he said this, he took bread, gave thanks to God in front of all of them, broke it, and began to eat. They were all encouraged and they all took some food. In all, there were 276 on board. After they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship by throwing the wheat into the sea. I've dived the Mediterranean many times at many different times of the year. And the winter water temperature in the Med is in the mid-50s to maybe 60 during the winter. It's cold. The men overboard have been seasick for two weeks, unable to eat anything, 
as they're tossed about in that violent storm. If they're to stave off hypothermia, they must eat something to help maintain their body temperature. And Paul knows it. After all, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that he had previously been three times shipwrecked. He passed a night and a day in the open sea. Now there's a good quiz question. How many times had Paul been shipwrecked? Almost everyone will go to 2 Corinthians and say, three times, he wrote it right there. Yes, but that was before this. Four times Paul was shipwrecked. So after eating, they threw the entire cargo of wheat overboard and they lightened the ship. Chapter 27, beginning at verse 39. When day came, they did not recognize the land, but made out a bay with a beach. Thankfully, it wasn't a rocky cliff. They planned to run the ship aground if they could. So they cast off the anchor, abandoned them to the sea. At the same time, they unfastened the lines of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made a dash for the beach. But they struck a sandbar and the ship got stuck in the surf zone. The bow was wedged in. It couldn't be moved. The stern began to break up with a pounding surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners so none might swim away and escape. Remember when Peter escaped? The Roman guards who were watching him were all put to death. The Philippian jailer, afraid that Paul and, Timothy and Silas had escaped, he's going to kill himself. Well, these soldiers aren't going to let that happen. They're going to kill the prisoners. But Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. You can't do this. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to the shore. And then the rest who couldn't swim, some on planks, others on debris from the ship. In this way, they all reached shore safely. And this is the very first example we have in the Bible of surfing. Some made it to shore on boards. <laughs> Don't you love that? But where are they? They're on the island of Malta. The island of Malta. St. Paul's Bay is on the northern shore toward the west. And uh, Valletta is the primary harbor a little bit further, further east but they came in at the bay. We've been to that bay many a times on our Footsteps of Paul journeys, going to Malta to see the bay itself. So once we reached safely, uh, reached, had reached safely, we learned that the island was called Malta. The natives showed us extraordinary hospitality. They lit a fire, welcomed all of us because it had begun to rain and it was cold. They've been in 55 degree water. And the people on Malta, you always help people in a shipwreck, people in danger at sea. And they ran out into the water. They dragged people in. They made a big bonfire to get people warm. Paul was helping to gather brushwood and putting it on the fire. And when he did, he had a big bundle of, of brushwood, put it over the raging fire to drop it in, and a viper escaping the heat that was in the brush bit him on the hand and fastened himself to his hand. Paul dropped the brush and he held up his hand. Ah! And a snake was dangling from it. 
And when the natives saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said, Oh, that man must certainly be a murderer. Though he escaped the sea, justice has not let him remain alive. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no harm. They were all expecting him to swell up and drop dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen, they changed their minds and they began to say, he, he must be a god. Well, when I was a young Marine, I was sent to Desert Survival School in Yuma, Arizona. And we spent an entire week out in the desert getting by on what we could find. We learned how to make water. We learned how to navigate. We learned how to uh, find food to eat. And what kind of food do you eat? Well, a lot of things eat in the desert. You might not find them particularly appealing, but one of the better meals is snake. There were sidewinders all over the place in the desert in Yuma. And, uh, and we, were, we were taught how to catch one, how to chop its head off, skin it, cook it. But don't get bit. <laughs> the lethality of a snake bite depends upon the type of snake, the volume and concentration of the venom injected, and whether the injection is subcutaneous, intravenous, intermuscular, or directly into the abdominal cavity. Subcutaneous bites are by far the most common and the least lethal. The volume and concentration of venom varies according to the interval between bites. So if this snake that bit Paul had just recently, within hours, bitten uh, a mouse or another animal and ate it, it had no venom to inject, or perhaps only a small amount. The fact that St. Paul is unaffected by the bite may well be due to natural causes, or perhaps supernatural ones. This scene, I think, may very well be the source for the addition to Mark's gospel written sometime in the early to mid-60s, that reads in chapter 16, verse 18, In my name they will pick up serpents and will not, it will not harm them. I think this is where that comes from. Well, in the vicinity of that place were lands belonging to a man named Publius, the chief of the island. He welcomed us and received us cordially as his guests for three days. Now, it so happened that the father of Publius was sick with a fever and dysentery. Paul visited him and, after praying, laid his hands on him and healed him. After this had taken place, the rest of the sick on the island came to Paul and were cured. They paid us great honor, and when we eventually set sail, they brought us the provisions that we needed. A man named Publius, the chief of the island, the governor, when we visit the island of Malta, we go to the archaeological remains of his home, of the governor's home. And what, what an extraordinary adventure that is to be on the island of Malta, to see St. Paul's Bay, where Paul got snake bit. And it, it's a fabulous, a fabulous thing to do. I love the island of Malta. And just a little bit to the northwest is a smaller island called Gozo. If I were to retire any place in the world, I would retire to Gozo. 
It is a wonderful little island. And did you know there are more opera houses on Gozo than on any other place on the planet in the same amount of area? So the archaeological remains of Publius Estate. It overlooks the Bay of St. Paul. And today, St. Paul's Cathedral is the main, uh, the main church on the island of Malta. So they stay for three months. In chapter 28, beginning at verse 11, three months later, we set sail on a ship that had been wintered on the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with Dioscory as its figurehead. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days, and from there we sailed round the coast and arrived at Regium. After a day, a south wind came up, and in two days we went on to Petulai. And there we found some brothers and were urged to stay with them for seven days. And thus we came to Rome. The brothers from there heard about us and came from as far as the Forum of Apius and the Three Taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul gave thanks to God and he took courage. And when he entered Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. That is, he was still under protective custody. As you recall, St. Paul and company sailed from Crete sometime after Yom Kippur, which fell on October 5 in AD 59. So the shipwreck on Malta would have occurred in late October or early to mid-November. Paul and company then spent three months on Malta, where they winter, and thus Paul would have sailed for Rome sometime in early February, A.D. 60, arriving in Rome at the beginning of spring. To confirm our dating, Pliny the Elder writes in his Natural History, that navigation resumes in the Mediterranean when the west winds start to blow on February 8th. So our dating is right on spot. The Alexandrian ship that Paul is on has a, is a grain cargo ship, and the Christian community in Rome was founded long before St. Paul arrived in AD 60. He writes his epistle to the church in Rome in AD 57, but he's never been there at that point. Priscilla and Aquila returned home to Rome. That's where they lived. They returned home from Ephesus in AD 54. And in Jerusalem on Pentecost of AD 32, the birth of the church, there were visitors in Jerusalem from Rome who witnessed the birth of the church, who stayed afterward, and then when the persecutions began under Paul, went back to Rome. They're the people who founded the church in Rome. Well, Paul was finally there. Three days later, he called together the leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, My brothers, although I had done nothing against our people or our ancestral customs, I was handed over to the Romans as a prisoner from Jerusalem. After trying my case, the Romans wanted to release me because they found absolutely nothing against me deserving the death penalty. But when the Jews objected, I was obliged to appeal my case directly to Caesar here in Rome, even though I had no accusation to make against my own nation. This is the reason, then, I have requested to see you and speak with you. 
For it's on account of the hope of Israel that I wear these chains. And I'm, I'm here. Again, not shackled. As we'll learn, Paul lives in his own rented house for two years, free to come and go. But he has a guard with them to protect him. As a Roman citizen, Paul had the right to appeal his case directly to Rome and a right to face his accusers. So if the case was to be heard in Rome, in the imperial court, then the Jews from Jerusalem would have to send a delegation to Rome, along with their attorney, to present the case. So Paul waits. But the people, the Jews in Rome said, we've received no letters from Judea about you, nor has any of the brothers arrived with a damaging report about you. We, we don't know anything about this, but we'd like to hear you present your views, for we know that this sect is denounced everywhere. So they arranged a day with him and came to his lodgings in great numbers. And from early morning until evening, he expounded his position to them, bearing witness to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets. Some were convinced, others not. Without reaching any agreement among themselves, they began to leave. And Paul said, Let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Well, that was very smart of Paul to inform the Jews in Rome that he was there. He fully expected that the Jews in Jerusalem had sent messengers ahead of him to continue the whole trouble. But Paul lucked out. Apparently, the Jews in Jerusalem just thought it wasn't worth it. Send a whole delegation to Rome to confront Paul in the imperial court. Paul, a Roman citizen. Well, finally, we read, Paul remained for two full years in his lodgings. He received all who came to him, and with complete assurance and without hindrance, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke writes that Paul lived two full years literally at his own expense, emphasizing once again that Paul had financial resources. Paul was allowed to live by himself with the soldier who was guarding him, and in our reading, the soldier provided security, not imprisonment. The final word in Acts, in Luke's Greek text, is unhindered, stressing St. Paul's freedom to proclaim the gospel. So Paul is finally in Rome. St. Paul, of course, went on from Rome in AD 62 and continued his work, being arrested again during the persecution under Nero in 64 to 68. But this time he was sentenced to death imprisoned at the Mamertine prison in Rome, and, as a Roman citizen, beheaded, probably in A.D. 68. Luke leaves all this out. He leaves us with Paul in Rome awaiting his hearing. Luke begins his Luke-Acts narrative with Caesar Augustus issuing a decree from Rome that the whole Roman world be counted. The action then moves in Luke's gospel from Caesar and Rome to Galilee, to Jerusalem, to the cross and the empty tomb with Jesus as the main character. It funnels down. 
from Rome to the empty tomb in Jerusalem. Acts then moves from the resurrected Jesus from the tomb to Judea, Samaria, to Rome with the Holy Spirit as the main character. So we have a reverse structure. Luke funneling down, Acts funneling out. The two together look like an hourglass. Luke crafts a brilliant, perfectly balanced symmetrical narrative, a work of genius that stands shoulder to shoulder at the very summit of world-class literature. So there we have the Acts of the Apostles. Now, if you've been with me for these podcasts, our featured course in Logos Bible Study, if we go to the website, logosbiblestudy.com, the featured course is St. Paul the Apostle. It's a multi-quarter course. This quarter, we just finished Lesson 8 of 20 lessons, and we're moving through Acts in much greater depth than we've done here uh, in our podcast. But I wanted to give you a taste of it because next quarter we'll move from the narrative context of Paul's life in Acts to his letters and epistles. And we're going to cover all 13 of them over multiple quarters. So we're looking at a really good, solid, substantial course on St. Paul the Apostle. If you've not registered for that course, I encourage you to do so. Just go to the website, feature course, register right there. All the back lessons, one through eight at this point, are there. You have access to them. And every Saturday at 10 a.m., I have office hours on Zoom where students registered in class can meet with me on Zoom. We talk to each other. Uh, we build community. They ask questions. And typically, we spend about an hour to an hour and 15 minutes together every Saturday morning at 10. As a registered student in St. Paul the Apostle, you will be welcome to do that. So here we are, end of Acts. I have to think about what to do next. And uh, perhaps we'll go back to the Old Testament and pick up some characters back there. But I'll think about it uh, over the weekend and decide what we should do. So thank you for being with me for this series on, uh, on Acts and a series of podcasts. We covered all of Acts, at least to some degree of depth, and, uh, and really illustrated Paul and all the people associated with him during that time. Thank you. I appreciate your being here. Love spending the time with you on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Look forward to it every week. Keep me in your prayers. I'll keep you in mine, and I will see you on Monday. Bye-bye now.